Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 50 high school senior girls descend on Mobile, Alabama every summer to compete for a massive cash prize. It's one of America's most lucrative scholarship competitions for teen girls. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is the competition. Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I've chased after comedians after the show to make it crystal clear how funny I thought they were, whether they wanted to hear from me or not. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I saw the star of King of Queens. Oh, Kevin James. Correct. Continue. People with two first names for 400. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of Fanatics. Yes, I am Claire Kramer here with my wonderful co-host, Jake Marin. Hi, Jake. Hey, Claire. It is going to be a great one today because we have the one and only Kevin Pollack. He is that guy, y'all. You've seen him in A Few Good Men. He's Tom Cruise's number one go-to guy in that movie. Of course, you've seen him in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's his hot new thing that has just like captivated the world. And he's even doing a podcast about it, Claire. I know, but see, I love Kevin from Usual Suspects. Yes. I mean, if you're yes. looking at the lineup, he's the first guy on the left. You know him. I mean, that movie, come on. It's amazing. Also, Claire, Kevin's a stand-up too, though. Most people may only know him from acting, but he's a sensational stand-up, and he's actually going to be talking about it today with us, his love of stand-up comedy in general. So you know me as a comedian. I'm stoked, Claire. I know. Well, I'm curious because his origin story comes from stand-up and being a mm -hmm. comedian, but then his work has been pretty dramatic. I mean, if you think yes. of A Few Good Men, if you think of Usual Suspects, I mean, obviously there's the outliers there, you know, mm -hmm. grumpy old men and, and she's all that, whatnot. But he's kind of been slotted with some very serious projects and serious actors of our time. So finding out his funny, I'm really excited about that. And he gets into it. He's a very funny man. And he's got a lot of insight about what makes a great stand-up as well. So get ready for this episode. Amazing guest, obviously, but the topic we're about to jump into with the one and only Kevin Pollack is stand-up comedy, and it's going to be amazing. Okay, Kevin, what is funny about stand-up comedy? Ha, huh. that question. <laughs> no, I, I am curious, though. What is the skill set that makes a successful stand-up set? Like, what does the comedian have to have, and what points need to be sort of hit? Well. It isn't quite ready-made construct. The breakdown of a standard joke might be, you know, first and foremost, the stand-up has to find their voice. Mm -hmm. And their voice really equals, what is your point of view on everything and nothing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I came up uh, as a very young lad doing impersonations, but eventually I had to speak as myself. 
even if just to set up the stories for the impersonations. And then the more I did that, the more I found that I really liked talking as myself. And even though the audience would often come to see me do impersonations, I would torture them by top-loading my voice and my POV on all things I wanted to talk about in the first 20 minutes of the hour and then give them what they came and paid for in the last <laughs> 40 minutes. So, you know, it really is about finding your voice and your particular bent on life. Absolutely. And, and let me ask you, you know, you started stand-up very young. Did you have any influences that you saw on TV that just made you think, I have to do that? Yeah. So in keeping with the long-standing tradition of fanatics, I collected comedians on television as a 9, 10-year-old the way my friends collected baseball cards. I don't have an explanation. There was no aha moment. There was no epiphany origin story to this practice. I just remember being allowed to watch late night talk shows as a very young lad. It's probably just one, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And, and maybe variety shows also were big at the time where you would see an Albert Brooks on Flip Wilson's variety show. So I would collect the styles and the point of views of all these comedians with tremendous enthusiasm and love and appreciation and slowly my own comedic palette became more sophisticated as I learned more and more from these geniuses. Albert Brooks, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, uh, Woody Allen, you know, Cheech and Chong, Steve Martin, Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Uh, yeah. I mean, the list is kind of endless. What is the origin of stand-up? What is the origin story of this art form? Well, there's a few different versions. You know, Buckminster Fuller was big. In school, I wasn't really paying attention much unless the teachers were really, really enthusiastic. So one semester, an English teacher just taught the works of Samuel Clemens, who was more famous, of course, as Mark Twain. But uh -huh. the early writings of Samuel Clemens were, you know, Diary of Adam and Eve, these short stories written as if Adam and Eve kept a diary. Like, who is this freak that I keep running into that's also wearing a fig leaf? But just brilliant stuff. And, and I got to the point where I learned more and more about Samuel Clemens, who, as Mark Twain, became one of the first touring stand-up comedians for sure. Mm -hmm. It probably goes back to the early days of the Greeks where someone stood in front of others and was an orator and within that found reasons to make them laugh in order to hold their attention. Okay, and for the purposes of our audience, just in case someone out there is not familiar, which there always is one person not familiar with the topic, could you describe what is stand-up comedy? What is it? The freakish ability to stand in front of a crowd of complete strangers and talk either in a personal stylistic way or just in a joke-telling way or a storytelling way for the sole purpose of eliciting laughter, but also their love. I uh, directed a documentary called Misery Loves Comedy. This may be the best educational tool. The genesis of the documentary was, do you have to be miserable to be funny? <laughs> yeah. The genesis and the thesis, I suppose. 
you know, I, I interviewed 60 annoyingly famous, funny people from Jim Gaffigan and Mark Marin and Mike Babiglia, but also people who had had to hold the audience's attention on stage, be it Tom Hanks or William H. Macy. You know, that pain of of the stand-up, of sharing something that they think is extraordinarily funny and an audience of collected strangers who've never met as a whole ever before or will ever again, reacting as this moving body. And when they're all in the same agreement that what the stand-up thinks is funny isn't, there is no feeling like that in the same way that there's no feeling like getting them all to laugh on cue Actual endorphin is released, and over many decades, comedians have told stories of having a gig when they get a flu or serious, uh, you know, type of cold flu situation, and they'll go on stage and miraculously cured instantly while on stage, and then the moment they come off stage, the illness returns. So it, it is a bizarre practice, if not profession, to say the least. I love it. And as far as stand-up goes, you know, you've already mentioned The Tonight Show, but as it's evolved, are there any current stand-ups that you watch now that you're just kind of impressed with? Yes. Nate Bargatze certainly rings true. Mm-hmm. Bill Burr. Oh, yeah. In a giant way. Ricky Gervais, who who's become a friend over the last decade or so, but seeing him perform live is pretty remarkable in terms of storytelling and laughs and and also getting to the, the heart and soul of many a matter that faces all of us. Absolutely. And those are my favorite types of comedians. I'm, I'm a stand-up as well, Kevin. And for me, the reason I got into it was I had a severe back surgery. And I found <laughs> comedy. Th- I know it's hilarious, Claire, but it's the truth. It's like this pain. I was like bedridden. And then I, I'm watching Don Rickles on Carson back in the day. And I'm watching all these, you know, hilarious experiences. And that pushed me to get on stage so I'm curious for you if there was any misery in particular that you have overcome to kind of push yourself to get on stage. So what I found from directing the documentary and, and interviewing over 60 annoyingly famous funny people was that like any artist, be it a playwright, songwriter, painter, poet, our job is to articulate misery. Mm. So you have to have experienced it But you then have to figure out within your art form how to articulate it to either make it so universal that the audience or viewer or listener is moved, but also feels a sense of connection. Oh, this happened to me too. Or your experience is so unique that the audience or viewer or listener is left with, oh, you poor bastard. Yeah. As a response. When you go to watch stand-up, what is it that you look for in the funny? Like, obviously, if you know the comedian, you know what kind of work they're going to be doing, so you make a choice based on that. But if you're going to see new talent, if you're going, you know, on a Wednesday night to a stand-up night at a club, what resonates with you as an audience member? Uh, It really often does just come down to their point of view and how unique and original it it is while maybe being universal as well, as I said, but also... I do want to forget the outside world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless the comedian's act is to talk about the outside world. And then I need them to release that comic 
pressure from the serious side of whatever the topic is from the outside world and release all the pressure and stress by making me laugh at either the situation or, or making me laugh at how I've been treating the situation. Mm -hmm. And when writing material yourself, how do you harvest nuggets that turn into part of your set? Going back to the finding your voice, finding your point of view, because the truth is once you find your point of view, then every single topic is open. Mm -hmm. So throughout the course of any day or night, I'm making notes in my phone, the notes app, that is a non-paid plug. <laughs> okay, so I drove past a sign on a storefront that said pediatric dentistry. And I just pulled over and wrote, yeah. again, these are not formulated routines, joke, jokes, or material. This is just what I wrote. So you, uh, bold in all caps and underlined, really hate children if you're choosing this line of work. <laughs> What's the goal? To never not hear a child screaming? <laughs> Let's see. I was raised by wolves, well, Jews, so emotional wolves who ate their young. <laughs> it's very true, Claire. Let me let, tell you. Let's see. Oh, this is just a random thought. Have serial killers also moved on to almond milk? That is funny. <laughs> and it's a very good question. <laughs> I like it. Okay, we talked a little bit about the origin of comedy and stand-up, but do you remember your origin story of seeing stand-up for the first time? I remember mine really clearly. I was going to New York City with my high school boyfriend and his dad, and we went and saw Rodney Dangerfield at his club. And I could not stop laughing for like the whole hour and a half. And here I was like 14, you know, pretty young to be seeing that kind of material. It changed my life. It made me realize like, uh, you know, being an artist doesn't have to be torturesome. <laughs> and you don't have to show like the depth of your artistic ability through drama. You can actually show it in the same way through humor. So I'm wondering when did you sort of have like that moment with comedy and stand up? My parents would bring home comedy albums. And I would listen to them, and I would see my parents laughing uncontrollably when I was probably seven or eight. Laughing so uncontrollably, it was unnerving at first. It was as if they were openly weeping. It was such a weird visual to see your parents losing their minds with laughter. One of the reasons I think they say laughter is the best medicine, because it's, when best served, completely involuntary as a reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There are versions that are a thinker, you know, greats like Mitch Helbert could make you think for a moment and then laugh uncontrollably and involuntarily. So to see them react that way, you know, and, and, and listen to these comedy albums certainly inspired me, I'm sure, not even realizing it, yeah. to want to be the one that was eliciting that behavior from my own parents. And then I remember my mom came home and caught me standing in front of the stereo hi-fi, lip-syncing a comedy album. I didn't think I was lip-syncing. I didn't think I'd created something called lip-syncing. I'd never heard the term. I was just playing. I was mm -hmm. There was no in interactive games. We had just invented fire. I'm old. So I was standing <laughs> in front of the stereo hi-fi, the seven-foot-wide piece of furniture, pretending I was the one telling the story that the comedian from the furniture was telling. And my mother literally caught me. I used that term for a reason. And she pointed at me and said, while laughing, 
you're doing that for the Zuckers at Passover. <laughs> so, you know, and one of the things in the documentary, Misery Loves Comedy, technically still available on Amazon, that is discussed is one of the, they're broken into chapters. One of the chapters is who's your daddy and or mommy and getting to the core of, did you get support and love when you decided to be a funny person or did your parents say, yeah, yeah, get a real job. So in that moment, when I was 10 and my mom caught me standing in front of the furniture playing, like I was the one telling the story, it could have gone one of two ways. I could have been, you know, ridiculed or undermined in some way. But instead, I was booked. My mother booked me <laughs> for my first gig at the Zuckers for Passover, where I stood on their white painted out brick fireplace and lip synced this album. And the Jews lost their minds. And um, even though they weren't an audience of strangers, and also because it was lip syncing, I was benefiting from this great comedian's material and his timing. But that experience changed my life forever, for sure. And listening to other comedy albums and picturing before I even saw them on TV, and then I would see certain comedians on TV. Yeah. Well, nowadays, do you find yourself going to shows or do you like to, you know, pop on Sirius Radio and listen to some stand-up? Or are you listening to podcasts? Where are you getting your stand-up nowadays, Kevin? A lot of times I'll just call up to folks and ask them to come by the house and do a, a tight 20 for me. Tight 20 um, No, I'll watch... Uh, <laughs> I'll watch the specials on TV. That's probably where I'm mostly getting it. And I'll, I'll go out on occasion and see a live show. Do you have a favorite venue? In all the venues you've been to, is there one that just is the cathedral, the synagogue? It's the temple. It's right there for you. It's the place. To perform in or to watch? Both. Well, I mean, back in the day when I was doing stand-up full-time in Los Angeles, the improv on Melrose was oh, yeah. my home court, certainly. My hometown of San Francisco, where I found my point of view and my, my act, probably the punchline or Cobbs. And Cobbs was the old boarding house where Steve Martin recorded his first stand-up album. And certainly performing on stage at Carnegie Hall didn't suck. But yeah, I mean, for pure stand you know, it's interesting. I happened to be in London a, a year and a half, two years ago, when Ricky Gervais was gearing up to shoot his stand-up special before this last one, because he's basically putting him one out a year now. We saw him at the Palladium, which is not a big room. And, and you know, he's mm -hmm. playing arenas now. And this place probably holds, I don't know, maybe a thousand or less. And he said it was one of his favorites. And I understood why as I sat there watching, because it was so intimate. And, you know, he would do five or six shows at this little venue to get as many people to have this experience as possible. And that room, by the way, Judy Garland performed in in the 60s. You know, this, this venue has been around forever. So those sorts of venues tend to hold a great deal of profoundness. Well, there's something about the history. Yeah. People talk about the vibes or, you know, the feeling. It's a real thing. It is. Yeah. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. 
let me ask you this, because as you're talking, I'm having all sorts of thoughts. And one is what I love about comedy and watching a great comedian is sort of like the self-deprecation and the ability to not take oneself too seriously in the world. So I'm curious, Kevin, here's a deep question from me. Can a narcissist actually be a stand-up comedian? Because a true narcissist doesn't have that view of the world without themselves being on top. So is there humor in that? Or do you have to have a certain psychological point of view to be funny? Well, listen, Facebook certainly proved a longstanding belief that everybody wants to be somebody mm -hmm. and that we all ultimately suffer from, hey, look at me disease. And we can thank our parents, I suppose, for that. But those who choose it as a profession, the hey, look at me disease, you have to be a bit of a narcissist to get on that stage and face a, a room of strangers. You have to have a level of blinded faith in your point of view or what you think is funny just to get up there. Yeah. I think in, you know there's a lot of varying degrees of what of what narcissistic behavior is. So, yeah, no, the rude obnoxious narcissist would not do too well. But the courage and confidence necessary to stand on that stage. I suppose there's there's narcissism running through all of us. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's the ultimate hey look at me, but also I liken it to a boxer where you have people in your corner, trainers, promoters, and, uh -huh. and managers and things. I've always looked at it like a wrestler, like a pro wrestler. Yeah, you step in the ring, yeah. you, you've got your own wits that you're living and dying on, on, a, on a moment by moment basis. But I will say the difference between boxing, true boxing, and, and what I think wrestling is, is that there's no rehearsal. Fair enough. You actually have an opponent that wants to knock you out devour you yeah yeah and the audience wants wants you to do well but they will turn on a dime it's amazing even if you're doing an hour you could be what we call killing or owning the audience for 48 minutes straight just everything's firing on all cylinders and doing phenomenal and then if you take a turn and you're flubbing and you're losing your stage presence for 20 seconds after owning them for 48 minutes, they will turn and want to devour you like wolves. I'm so glad you brought this up because bombing is something I've experienced plenty. So I'm curious, Kevin, have you ever seen a comedian bomb so hard that you just, your heart kind of exploded inside a little bit? Well, it's one of the chapters in the, in the documentary mm. is called Bombs Away. And by the way, the realistic anticipation of bombing should never go away. It's there waiting for you every time you take the stage. That's Always the available. glory. <laughs> Always available. Just when you think things are going well, it's waiting there for you. Yeah. But it's that great mechanism to keep you on your toes and also to make you appreciate what the hell it is you've been allowed to do. Yeah, you, you feel alive. Talk to us a second about that feeling when you're on stage and that first joke, your opener, and it just hits. What is that feeling when the audience reacts to you like that? Well, there's nothing like it. I mean, you've planned an experience. You have a sense of control. It's one of the things that I, I like when, when folks would talk about and open up about. There is a sense of control on stage as a stand-up that doesn't exist in real life. So to accomplish that in the opening remarks is key, essential, but also to answer your question, 
insanely rewarding. I've always made a point of having a, the first five seconds be something, even if it's an old standby standard. Uh, I can't count the number of times I've walked out to a, a packed, seated audience, and as the applause finally subsides, my first words are, please be seated. <laughs> and it. it's so simple, probably dates yeah. back to the 30s. <laughs> There's nothing original about it, but it's just that quick little, and it got an involuntary laugh from both of you, because it's just the absurdist nature of it, clearly. So it is crucial, in my view, in my experience, to establish in the audience's mind, oh, we're in good hands. Oh, okay, good, good, good. This this one knows what they're doing. Do you consider yourself a tough audience member because of your history, or are you more open because you like to laugh? Tough might be an unfair word, but it certainly speaks to... I just know too much. I've been around too long. Yeah, you know behind the scenes. I know how it's all done. But when you earn that laugh, like the first time I saw one of the comedians I mentioned, you know, it, there's a louder, more aggressive reaction from me because I am so uh, difficult to reach. And on that, do you have some favorite bits that you still pop into your head? Maybe you'll quote from time to time or, or pop on when you're feeling sad? Hmm. Probably over my lifetime, there there have been. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll watch Richard Pryor talking about being lit on fire and doing the match. Because to me, that just hits. It I, Something about it always hits. There's always something new I could find that, that touches me. So I'm just curious if there's a bit from another comedian that just really touches you in a way. Yeah, some old uh, Albert Brooks stuff always makes me feel better about everything. Yeah. His appearances on The Tonight Show or the one I mentioned on Flip Wilson, even where he's doing a ventriloquist act. And it's designed to go horribly wrong from the outset. He's not a ventriloquist and it's painfully obvious and he's nervous. And it's just, there's no way to do it justice. Just... YouTube Albert Brooks on Flip Wilson, and you'll see what I'm talking about. We talked earlier about having the audience, you know, just having them and hitting everything and whatnot. And I know that feeling, too, from, like, not stand-up, but any any sort of thing where you're just nailing it and you know, like, God, I'm totally nailing this. Like, what does that feel like inside? How do you feel internally, emotionally when when you're on stage and you're just killing? There's a sense of exhilaration and and, mm -hmm. and happiness, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, true happiness, giddiness. I've never been nervous to go on stage or walk through that curtain on The Tonight Show with Carson or, or any of the ridiculous opportunities I've had. There was always a sense of excitement, not nerves, of really being incredibly aware, present of how fortunate I was and the excitement for the opportunity was the overwhelming emotion that was happening. It wasn't overwhelming, so I couldn't do my thing. But, but I always definitely instill that in others to to be excited. There's, you've already done all the work to get there, to get this opportunity. Now's the time to actually celebrate it while you're doing it, and that's the sense I have when, when yes, things are going well on stage as a stand-up. And when you watch someone else doing, you know, really nailing their set, 
do you, after the show, want to go talk to them and be like, you killed it. You yeah. were right there. This moment, oh, yeah. this. <laughs> talk to us about that a little bit. I've chased after comedians after the show to make it crystal clear how funny I thought they were, whether they wanted to hear from me or not. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I saw the star of King of Queens. Oh, Kevin James. Correct, continue. People with two first names for 400. <laughs> yeah, I saw Kevin James perform, and we hadn't met at a show in Vegas, and I got myself backstage, and I just remember running down this hallway where maybe they were bringing the food out from and just seeing the back of him walking towards wherever he was headed and just shouting out his name as a way to not only introduce myself, but let him know how ridiculously funny I thought he was. And, you know, his reaction was surprise and maybe awkwardness because <laughs> I caught him by the kitchen. But uh, yeah, I love making it clear to comedians afterwards how much I loved them. I love that. I always say with my kids after a sports game, I'm like, let's talk about the sports report because there's just as much satisfaction in analyzing yeah. what's happened to me, at least as an observer and as maybe the one who's performing as there is from the actual performance itself. So the post report is very important to our family. <laughs> yeah, should be. So Kevin, let me ask you this. Why did you decide to become a comedian and why do you have a fanaticism for the funny? You know, your mom, I'm sure called you out in other ways over the years. It wasn't just for Passover to do the, you know, lip sync stand up. There had to be other things that she praised and gave you accolades for. So why did this really resonate with you? I think the same way I saw my parents laughing uncontrollably was so startling and grabbed me so specifically that when I was the cause of others reacting that way. It was overwhelming and it was instant because I was lip syncing the album of a famous comedian. That comedian had done all the work. Yeah. I was just this 10 year old pitcher who had figured out when to clear his throat the same time as the person on the album and, and all of that. But it was an instant hit, right? So, at 10, there was no struggle for me to find my voice. All the things that I implore on other comedians and have enjoyed learning, if you're asking, what was it? You know, this is the origin story. So, yeah, the not having to do the homework had a lot to do with it. I mean, I didn't realize I had been doing the homework by listening to the album 400 times and memorizing every nuance and, and bit and gesture. I was learning timing from, from a master right? Didn't realize that, that has served me throughout my life as an actor and as a writer and a director. So yeah, I think because I was able to benefit from what those masters worked really hard at, at the age of 10, way before I had earned it, that it was so exhilarating and so exciting and otherworldly all at the same time. And I was the center of that attention. What 10-year-old wouldn't have a epiphany. I certainly did. <laughs> I agree. It sounds great. <laughs> to that note, with your documentary, let me ask you this about your hypothesis. Yeah. To be a comedian, do you have to push down your own negative feelings or do you have to explore them even more? Yeah, I think you have to figure out a way to articulate them. I think it's also a tremendous therapy being on stage to work through your actual issues mm -hmm. if you can find a funny and entertaining way to do so. 
Nobody actually wants to see a comedian be miserable on stage unless it's funny. That's called drama. Write a play. <laughs> so, yeah, the task or the profession is devoted to articulating it in a humorous way that is either universal or so personal. Because the one thing in life you cannot control are your feelings. So, there you, you know, go. Might as well turn them into funny. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, you just need a little distance from the moment of the pain. Comedy is tragedy plus time. So goes the saying. And, uh, one of the fun things also in the documentary I talked to comedians about is getting back to that bombing thing. Rob Bryden, a great British comedian, had an original take on it. He says, when I'm bombing and things aren't going well, I'll actually slow it down and present myself as even more confident. And I'll see the audience react to each other like, oh, I thought this guy was bombing. He Look how comfortable he is. <laughs> this must be what he wanted. I must be the idiot. That's genius. Yeah. I love that. Is there a certain subject or a certain short list of subjects that is completely taboo that comedians just know, listen, we just don't go there? Well, there always has been. Unfortunately, with cancel culture, it's become an epidemic. And comedians either respect that, some pander, others rise above it and drill down into it. Certainly Bill Burr and Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle come to mind in terms of drilling down on it. But there's always been a short list of, yeah, you're not going to hear a tremendous amount of cancer jokes. It's just not a thing. Unless you've lived through it and you have found a way to articulate your personal journey in a hilarious way. Mm -hmm. I like that because no topic is off limit. You just got to find a way to make it actually funny. That's right. Or no topic should be. So, Kevin... This has been amazing. Yes, it has. I am so grateful you're here. You're welcome. Do us a favor, though. Before you go, can you please give stand-up comedy a love letter? Dear stand-up comedy, from the bottom of my heart and shoes, I want to thank you for a life earned and in some ways unearned, for providing me most ridiculous opportunities and places to go. Sometimes I'll just be sitting out on the back deck looking uh, where I live and I'll say out loud, stand-up comedy did this. I know other comedians who feel the same and have said the same thing. So thank you on behalf of all of us. You are a true art form and I insist as much and that I've devoted my life to and gotten so much more from than I ever dreamed of. And you should know I dreamed real big. And so thank you for taking me on this extraordinary ride. I am forever in your debt. Love, Kevin. Love, Kevin. P.S. Thank you for being a big part of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and providing me all of those opportunities as well, including my rewatch podcast, my Mrs. Maisel pod. Yay, I slipped it in. Ha ha. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
I feel like comedy is one of those things that you can talk about and talk around, but then it's hard to like delve into. It takes so many emotions to be funny, Jake. I mean, you know this, you're a stand-up comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian. Talking to Kevin was great, you know, because he has such such an insight and he really broke down different comedians, how they make you laugh, how they connect with you, uh, you know, how they find out what their persona is. But yes, Claire, it is very brutal to put yourself on stage. It's not like with music where you can play an instrument. You're on the stage by yourself with people and that's it. And when it goes right, it's amazing. But when it goes wrong, mm. I think we talked about Jerry Seinfeld's documentary. Comedian. Mm -hmm. Which you just see him like looking like, like he wants to gouge his eyes out backstage before he goes on stage. And people traditionally think of Jerry Seinfeld as like, oh my God, he's so funny. He's the funniest person. You know, you just never think that this work takes the kind of like concentration and dedication to prepare. And that's one thing that Kevin was saying is like, you've done the work, you have to be prepared, you know, before you hit the stage. Yeah. It's not just to like go on stage and make everything up as you go along. No, but in some sense, you have to be prepared to make it up as you go along because every performance is unique. Even if a stand-up has their set and they know what they're going to do, you don't know what the audience is going to be like. You don't know what they're going to be feeling like that night. And it, it, you only find out by going on that stage. And it was so interesting to hear Kevin talk about how he never got nervous before going on. He would get excited because Claire, I've always noted if I don't have some butterflies in my stomach before I go and do stand-up, I'm going to bomb every time. Well, I'll tell you a little secret, Jake, and we'll see if I do this or not. I was invited to do a set on the East Coast in October <gasps> with a couple comedians who are parents, and I'm also a parent. <laughs> if you don't know that, you really have not been listening to Fanatics very long. Um, <laughs> and I'm deciding if I want to do this, you know, it would be aired on a certain network, and I've never done stand-up, so I'm like, I don't know, and they're like, you're funny. I'm like, yeah, but I'm like funny like, Hmm, sometimes and sometimes I'm funny ha, ha, ha. and I don't know how if it would be funny at all for me to do stand-up so hmm. this has to be its own mini-sode <laughs> it has to be but as somebody who has worked with you now for months I think you could do it and I think you could do a very good job so don't don't put yourself down just for not doing it I think the fact that you haven't done it before might also be a plus because you don't have in the back of your mind like these horrible open mics that haunt me to this day, Claire. Well, I mean, I just have my own effective memories that do that. For, I don't yes. need an open mic scenario for that. Don't worry. I'm haunted by plenty of things. But to oh. that note, speaking of minisodes, you guys, you're not done with Kevin. No. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Kevin is coming on to talk about my Mrs. Maisel pod this coming Monday, so, you know, you only have, like, four sleeps, they say that, in between. Mm -hmm. So drop in, listen to us talk about the podcast. It's really fun. It's a great a great reflection on the show. What's the word I'm looking for, Jake? I think reflection, a retrospective. A retrospective. I was going to make up a word, a retro reflection. <laughs> oh, I like that word. A George Bushism. Yeah. Well, hey, come on, Texan. <laughs> That's a clarism, clearly. <laughs> A clarism right there, y'all. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you guys for tuning in today. See you guys Monday for the mini-sode. And don't forget, wearefanatics.com, at wearefanatics on Twitter. Let us know your thoughts and go check out all our other uh, episodes, hilarious or not hilarious. I promise you there's something for everyone. It's like a bowl of potpourri to choose from. And we smell good. That's a fact. See you soon. Bye. 
Hi, this is Kevin Pollack. Listen to my mini-sode on Fanatics this coming Monday, where I talk about my new rewatch podcast, My Mrs. Maisel Pod. Hello. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. You can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.